It's a great time to uh, be together and to uh, worship our Lord through the study of His Word. I'll just ask if you would bow with me for a word of prayer as we begin our time this morning. Father, we thank You for today. A privilege it is for us as Christians to, to not only worship You as we are commanded to do, but to worship You through hearing from You. We open Your Word together and we look at what you would have us know, not only about your own character, but about the world around us. Lord, these are interesting times in which we live. These are, for the world, confusing times. They should not be confusing to us as Christians. We have your word. We have truth. We know what is right. We know what is absolute. And Lord, may our trust in You and our trust in Your Word not simply be words only, but may they be heartfelt desires and actions as we live each day. May we evaluate all things according to the objective reality of Your truth, knowing that it is right, and then live according to it, that you might for us as we worship you to affect our hearts, to cause us to recognize sinful areas of our own life that we might need to repent of, cause us to be caring for one another, joyful in the circumstance, trusting you with all those things. We ask your blessing upon our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take our precious Word of God that we have with us and turn in it to our study in 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. We are again returning to the final verses of chapter 2 in which we find the Apostle Peter giving us a graphic picture of what false teachers look like. One of the great truths within Christianity is the knowledge that God is always protecting His children. To know that God is not like other gods, that He is the only living God and that He cares for His own. It doesn't matter what circumstance that we might find ourselves in at any given time. The living and true God, our God, is always protecting those who are His own. And here we find protection for us in 2 Peter chapter 2. For us as His children, he, we find here a warning to us. A warning to us to beware of false teachers in and among the people of God. As shocking as that may seem, as somewhat unrealistic as that might come across to us who are Christians and in evangelicalism, there are false teachers among the people of God. Just as there are tares among the wheat, so too there are false teachers among the true believers. And that is simply to say that throughout the history of evangelicalism, throughout the history of the church, and even before the church began in the first century, false teachers have been propagating their lies. And the greatest danger of those lies comes through the subtleness in which those lies come. And that subtleness has lured an unaware number of people into their deceptions. In fact, that is the danger of any lie. A lie claims to be true. A lie claims to be the real thing. A lie claims to be that which it is not, and it even looks like it might be true from a distance or when it goes unchecked by actual truth. It seems as if it's right. 
And therefore, you and I as Christians need to know how to identify that which is false. And here in chapter 2 of 2 Peter, we are hearing the very graphic description of false teachers as Peter exposes their character. And all along, he has been highlighting for us the very eternal destruction that is to come upon them, even though they deny it by their very lives and their very words. We've mentioned it before in our study as we have looked at it even from the beginning of chapter 1. They mock the very coming of Jesus Christ. Just remind us of it here in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking. They're following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of His coming? This is, this is part of the lie. They're, they mock the future coming of Christ, and to mock the future coming of Christ is to mock the truth of the very words of God. It is to mock the necessity of salvation in Christ. To say that Christ is not to come is to mock the very reality of the necessity of salvation that is found only in Christ. To say that Christ is not coming is to mock the reality of sin's eternal penalty for mankind. That mankind is not guilty before God because Christ doesn't need to return. In fact, if Christ isn't going to return, then Christ never had to die. So it is to mock then the very atonement for sin that Jesus made through His death on the cross. To mock the coming of Christ is to deny the very resurrection through which all who believe upon Jesus Christ have been given eternal life because the Bible tells us that we are vitally and actually united with Christ. And therefore, everything that took place with Christ has taken place with those who believe upon Jesus Christ. And therefore, to mock the return of Christ is to then imply that none of what Christ has accomplished is actually effective for anyone. That all that Christ went through, that all that Christ did, that all of His ministry upon the earth was simply for naught. It accomplished nothing. It affected no one. And therefore, salvation is all up to you alone. Your salvation is up to you. In fact, heaven is what you make of life here and now. So work... You better work to get your best life now because Christ is not going to return anyway. There is no promise of His coming. See, all of these are, are dangerous implications that come from the lives and the mouths of false teachers. This is what they are saying through everything they teach, through how they live. And therefore, because it is God's intent to protect His own, and so too it is Peter's intent to protect those who are God's, He desires that we as the sheep of God's pasture, we as the church, the very thing for which Christ died, that we be protected. And so Peter is being the faithful pastor. He is doing exactly what Jesus had exhorted him to do in John 21. Tend my lambs. Tend my lambs. In fact, this is the very task of all pastoral leadership. This is the task at the top of the rung when it comes to pastoral leadership. Why it's so important for church leadership to be well-versed in the understanding of biblical doctrine. 
because Titus 1.9 implores leaders to be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Therefore, it would be sinful for Peter to not inform us of these crucial principles for our protection. And I would even go so far as to say it would be sinful for Peter not to show us it in such graphic ways. I'm continually reminded in my own pastoral ministry of the final time that the Apostle Paul met with the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, in which he warned them concerning the reality of savage wolves coming into the flock in order to destroy it. And he said in that very text that some will rise from among you. Intimating that it was already there. There were already these seeds of destruction in the hearts of some. And so as we look at the words here in chapter 2 of Second Peter, let us not take lightly the warning that we are being given. Let us not push it aside as if It is the words of someone simply being overzealous with something that really isn't that big of a deal anyway. Let us not be as some who are lulled into thinking that since God is love, as the Scriptures say, then Peter is just being unloving in his description of these kinds of people. Let us not be like that. Let us be like we ought to be, and take this warning with all the seriousness, all the, all the sober-mindedness that Peter intends, and thereby be protected from the potential of being drawn away in lies. Now last time, last time we were here, I showed us that Peter is describing the false teachers in very graphic terms. He's using very vivid pictures. He's using very vivid illustrations in order to heighten our attention to the seriousness of this warning. Uh, Some of you probably can relate to this. I remember years ago when I went through my own driver's training classes. I was instructed whereby the instructor wanted us as students to understand the seriousness of the responsibility of getting behind the wheel of a car and driving that vehicle on the road. And they did it partly by showing us the potential danger to life when driving in some kind of irresponsible way. What would happen to you if you did not take it seriously as you drove this 3,000-pound missile. And how they did that is they showed us movies of car accidents. I don't know what yours were called, but ours were called Red Pavement. Graphic. Graphic illustration. 41 years later of driving, I still remember it. I still remember those movies. It heightened my awareness. The warning was effective. Well, it's the same here. If we're going to be protected, then we must be vigilant about that which is false. And the best way for us to remain vigilant is to be well equipped in the truth so that we can identify the false. And part of the reality, part of being equipped with the truth is knowing what to look for and what to be aware of when it comes to false teachers. In verses 10 through 22 of chapter 2, we are getting the necessary help that we need to identify them as Peter shows us that they can be identified by their attitude and by their action. By their attitude, verses 10 through 16, and by their action, verses 17 through 22. Now, just to give us a bit of review, as we were here last Lord's Day, Peter says, beginning in the second half of verse 10, they are daring, 
self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. And they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Their stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in greed. And we can just stop right there for a moment. These are being described, therefore, for us as people who are so brazen in what they do and so brazen in what they say that they blaspheme the very holy things that they know nothing about. They do what holy angels would never do. In other words, they have such a disdain for any authority being over them that they will speak things and do things that even the holy angels would never do. Notice in verse 10, it says, especially those who indulge the flesh in corrupt desires and despise authority. Of course, we saw that as a description of them after Peter gives the graphic illustration of the destruction that is going to come their way by the proof that God has brought destruction upon the world in several different occasions. So because they are so daring, because they are so driven by their own self-will, because they care not for any authority, they don't care who sees what they do. They don't even do it in hiding. Peter says they revel in the daytime. They revel in the daytime. Revel is just a simple word that means wanton pleasure. It's it's pleasure that goes on unchecked. Pleasure is a desire of them and pleasure is their way. That's the idea. Doesn't matter how blatant it is, it doesn't matter how blasphemous it may be, they do it anyway, and they do it in full view. They don't care who sees it, they love the very deceptions that they are peddling. That's what Peter says. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. This is part of their wantonness, this is part of their their Uh, hatred for anything over them. They don't even think anything should be over them. They don't care who sees it. They count it a pleasure to do what they do in full view of everything else. And why? Why are they like this? Because, notice verse 15, they forsake the right way. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, and he received a rebuke for his own transgression, a dumb donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. So because they have forsaken the right way. By the way, the word there in the original for forsaken means to completely leave it behind. To completely leave it behind. To quit on it. In other words, false teachers, the reason that false teachers are the way they are is not simply because they are mistaken about the truth. False teachers don't say what they say simply because, oh, they happen to get it wrong. And gee, if they were shown the right way, then they would change what they say. No, they're not like that. They're not someone who is mistaken about the truth and they just need to gain further study in the truth. No. In fact, if we thought about it that way, that's all of us who are Christians from time to time. 
right? All of us, if we are Christians, we are grappling with the truth. We, we open the Word of God. It challenges our thinking. It challenges us to submit to it, and we grapple with that. And sometimes we're even wrong about that. But false teachers are the way they are, not because of that. They're the way they are because they've abandoned the truth. They've left the truth behind. They have been exposed to it. They've been exposed to the truth. They've known and know that it's right. But they completely quit following anything about the truth. They've quit the right way. They've forsaken the right way. And therefore, because of that, they've gone, notice, astray. They've gone astray. They've gone the way of delusion. Listen, take that as a warning to each and every one of us who are Christians. If you stray from the right way, the only other way is the way of delusion. There is no middle ground. If you forsake the right way, you will go astray. The word is planao. It means cause to wander or or to leave behind, to wander about aimlessly, if you will. In fact, they are so far from the truth that Peter says they cease sinning. They, they, They cease from, they never cease from sin, I should say. They never cease from sin. Verse 14. They have eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. Now, I don't know a more serious warning than that for Christians, do you? I don't know a more serious warning about a person or about even your own heart to say that that person is a person who never ceases from sin. We all sin. Even we who know Jesus Christ by faith, we as Christians sin. But that's not what Peter's talking about here. In the original language, by the wording, he means that they are completely unrestrained in their sin. That's the idea. They are unrestrained in their sin. It's unceasing. In other words, there is nothing in them to restrain sin. At least when we as Christians sin, at least we have something in us that helps restrain sin. Right? You say, what's that? It's the Holy Spirit. We've been given God the Spirit who lives in us, and the Holy Spirit brings conviction upon our conscience. That's why it's so important for us as Christians to not suppress the conscience. Don't ignore your conscience as it's held bound to the truth. Listen, God has given us a conscience as a warning light. This is why Paul says in Romans 1 that all men have a knowledge of God. Even the avowed atheist who denies the God who he says does not exist and argues against it, which seems like a strange oxymoron to me. Why would you argue against something that you know isn't there? But God has given them knowledge. They know. They know there's a God. It's written in their heart. We all know that because God has put it there in each person and the conscience knows it. And so the conscience is a signal bell to all of us. And the more your heart is tuned into the truth, the more you are saturated with truth, the more sensitive your conscience is to sinning. This is why it's such a reality for us as Christians who are to be saturating ourselves in the truth of God. And we realize the more we are saturated in the truth of God, the more it's revealed to us how much we sin. Because the word of God, like Hebrews says, is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's dividing down to the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's, it's no longer simply looking at the outward and the actions. Now it's dividing down to, to what is it that's driving that, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And you, you're saturated with the truth and your heart is revealed before you all the time. 
So when a person repents and believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, they are given the Holy Spirit who leads them in truth, thereby helps restrain unceasing sin. And this is the gift of God to us. God has given us a restrainer. But Peter's saying the false teachers don't have that. They don't have that. Why? Because they suppress the truth. They do not have the Holy Spirit. They are not saved. There is nothing to convict their conscience. It's filled with their own self-will, as Peter has said. They're driven by self-will, and therefore they sin unceasingly. This is why they're so dangerous. In fact, just listen to, just listen to God's rebuke of one of the seven churches in Revelation, the church of Pergamum. Right? God had good things to say. And then the angel says this in Revelation 2.14, I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam. You have there in your midst, I have this against you, you have there in your midst those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam. And what did Balaam do? It goes on in in Revelation 2. He taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. So Balaam, a prophet of God, went and did exactly what Balak wanted, who was the king of Moab. Remember we talked about this last week. And he He taught Balak to put a stumbling block, something that would trip up the nation of Israel before God. What was that? Revelation 2 tells us, he taught them to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. You say, what was the the whole issue? What What was driving all of that? The church, the nation of Israel compromise the authority of God for the authority of another. God had said, you will have no other gods before me, and yet under the counsel of Balaam, through the king of Moab, the nation of Israel began to compromise. And they compromised for the authority of another over them. Instead of doing what God had commanded of them, they began to do what another was showing them. And they compromised the authority of God for the authority of greed, for the authority of material gain, for the authority of personal gain. The indulging of the flesh unceasingly. That was the underlying issue with Balaam. Balaam refused to listen to God. Oh, sure. He said, if you go back and read the account of Balaam, he said he would listen to God. It appeared through his words that he would do what God wanted him to do, that he wanted to follow God. But God knew his true heart. God didn't need anyone to testify for Balaam before God. God knew the heart of Balaam, and God had to rebuke him through an animal of instinct. You see, Balaam despised the authority of God. He always wanted the money of Balak. Balak offered him large sums of money, and he said he wouldn't take it. No, I can only speak for God. He always wanted the money, and he led others astray in order to fulfill his greed. And when the people of Israel went into the sinful shame of sacrificing to idols and sexual immorality with temple pagan prostitutes, Balaam was receiving the cash. It's interesting. We're going to go to Jude after almost like a fourth chapter of 2 Peter. We're going to go there after we're done with 2 Peter. But Jude verse 11 says this, Woe to them, talking about false teachers, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, And for pay, they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. 
Jude links the group with a larger group, and they all have something in common. Cain, Korah, Balaam, they all have a disdain for something or someone to rule over them. They'll have it their way. The desire for their own personal gain. Well, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. This is exactly why Lucifer fell. He desired to be God. Unceasing greed. Unceasing heart of desire to be God Himself. That's the heart of every false teacher. They're greedy for self. And so the false teachers can be detected by their attitude. By their attitude. We talked about that last time, but they can also be detected by their action. And I just want to kind of walk through this this morning for us. By their action. You've probably heard the phrase, maybe in business, under promise but over deliver. Under promise but over deliver. That, That might necessarily be not a bad phrase in a business context. As long as you're not deceiving other people of your actual promise, then it could be okay. But false teachers do just the opposite. False teachers aren't like that. They always overpromise and always underdeliver. That's how Peter describes them here in verse 17. Notice these are springs without water, mists driven by the storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. In other words, they look good on the outside. They look all fresh and new and right, but they have no helpful substance on the inside. And you notice from the beginning of chapter 2 all the way even to here, Peter continues this theme of recurring judgment, that there's judgment to come. We saw it in detail in the first nine verses. And here he, he, he returns to it. The black darkness has been reserved for them. These are daring, self-willed people carrying out their lives in such a way as to be saying with their very lives that God would never bring judgment upon me. God would never do this. And yet, by way of illustration from the Old Testament, and by way of direct declaration here, judgment is continually on them. Back here in verse 17, the black darkness is reserved for them. It's interesting to me that by way of description, Peter is telling us that false teachers bring nothing that can help sustain us. That's really the essence of verse 17. They bring nothing that will help sustain life. The first readers of this letter, as Peter has written this to them, he says, this is now the second letter I'm writing to you, he says in chapter 3. The people who would have read this for the first time would have completely understood, because of their agrarian society and the agrarian life in which they lived, they would have understood the uselessness of springs without water. The one thing you need to survive in the desert is water. My wife and I traveled to Israel some 20 years ago. And the one thing we continue to joke about today when we leave the house, it's funny, I'll say to her, bring your water bottle. Not because we need it, but it's a joke between us because our guide every day as we spent three weeks in Israel would say, every time we got off the bus, bring your syllabus map. In other words, bring the map that I gave you and bring your water. Bring your water. To have water was to have life. But false teachers have no water. They have no water. They offer nothing for spiritual life. And so what is Peter saying here in verse 17? Again, it's, it's a warning. Again, it's a caution to us. Again, it's a, it's a sobering reminder. He's saying to us, ensure that you are not following. Ensure that you are not listening to those who bring only death. 
They have no life. They offer no life-giving nourishment. Oh, they look like rain. They look like they're going to have rain, but it's only a vapor. Here for a moment, gone in a second. And that's the reality. All false teachers can do is to appear to offer something to satisfy this thirsty soul. They appear to offer something that might bring help, but in the end, it gives nothing. Emptiness. That's what happens under false teachers today. Listen to the false teachers today, and what happens? All the words they say are doing only one thing. They're stirring up the emotions, stirring up the hope of receiving something. If I sow a seed, I'm going to receive something. If I come forward, I'm going to receive something. If I, if I go to this, I'm going to receive something. And yet all the people leave with empty souls. The sad part is that under that kind of cycle... Once the emotions dissipate, once the excitement fades, once the euphoria is no longer there, the people who follow it, like drug addicts who are seeking the next fix, they're duped by the false, and all they do then is return for another emotional high that leaves them just spiritually empty. So Peter says, notice in verses 18 and 19, where they're speaking out arrogant words of vanity. They entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. It's another image. Another masterful picture that Peter, Peter paints. False teachers are like a person standing on the corner of a street proclaiming to all passersby, I'll give you freedom. Here's freedom. You want freedom? Here it is. Have some freedom. Here's the way to truly be free. All the while, the person offering freedom is standing in a cage himself, totally enslaved. Listen, beloved, let's take the warning. If you are a person driven by greed and sensuality, if you're like a false teacher, then the one thing you need to get an audience that you want. The only way you can get an audience, get people to live and listen to you, is not to be telling them something they don't want to hear. If you live by greed and sensuality, the one thing you don't want to do is offend people. You don't want to say anything that might bring them to some sense in which they don't like you anymore. No, you have to tell them what you believe they want, even though you can't give it. You'll say whatever you need in order for them to come. You will, like verse 18 says, speak arrogant words of vanity. Arrogant words of vanity. Well, we know what arrogant words are. We, we know what arrogance is. Those are words that puff the speaker up, that, that show that they're the person you must listen to, that it isn't God they're speaking on behalf of, but it's them. They'll say things like, God spoke to me today and I have a personal word for you. That's arrogant words. In other words, I get direct revelation from God. I have what you don't have. Those are arrogant lies, beloved. You say, how do you know that, Pastor? Because Hebrews 1 tells us that in the last days, God has spoken to us in one way. He's spoken to us in His Son. He's spoken to us in His Son. Who's that? That's Jesus Christ. What's the central theme of all of the Scriptures? It's Jesus Christ. God has spoken to us in the Bible, in Jesus Christ. Listen, you want to hear God speak? Then open your Bible. 
That's the only place that he speaks. False teachers speak arrogant words. Notice, arrogant words of vanity. Arrogant words of vanity. Vanity means that it's nothing. It's vain. It's, it's what Ecclesiastes said. It's, it's wind passing through your hand. In other words, while they're boasting big things, it's actually just a lot of hot air. That's the idea. It's just wind. It's meaningless. No substance in truth at all. As one pastor friend said years ago, they're like a bag of chips. They have all the volume, but no substance. Bunch of air. And so they promise freedom. They speak arrogant vanities, promising freedom, it says in verse 19. Freedom from what? Freedom from what? Freedom from anything that you might feel you're in bondage to. Freedom from anything that might bring you trouble in this life. Freedom from health issues. Freedom from financial issues. Freedom from your inability to have pleasure in life continuously. Whatever it is. Whatever it is, they have freedom for you. When in fact, they have no freedom at all. The only thing they don't offer is what you truly need. They don't offer you freedom from the bondage of sin. They don't offer that. That's only found in Jesus Christ. But they've already left truth. They've abandoned truth. They forsook the right way. And so all they can offer is foolish words of vanity. They'll never tell you that by faith in Jesus Christ, being freed from the penalty of sin and freed from a, from a life to be now submissive in obedience to Christ is, is the right way. They'll never tell you that. Because that won't fulfill their self-willed, daring ways of life. False teachers never call anyone to holy living. Why? Because that doesn't sell well to tickling ears. Know Jesus Christ, be obedient to the things of the Word of God. They don't say those kinds of things because that doesn't fill their pockets with cash. That doesn't pat them on the back with praise from those who are emotionally desiring that very same thing, and yet it never happens. They're just like the Pharisees that Jesus was looking at when the people were bringing money to the temple and the woman comes with two mites and she drops two mites in the box and Jesus says she's given more than anybody. Why? Because the Pharisees were requiring of her everything. That's all she had. And they didn't say to her, listen, it's okay. This is all you have. Go take care of yourself. No, they took it anyway. That's like false teachers. They only tell you what you want. The fleshly desires of the heart. They'll never tell you the truth because that doesn't sell well. And it's the duped who are their victims. Notice verse 18. They by entice by fleshly desires and by sensuality. Who? Those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. You realize as, as you're reading through this that Peter's not talking about mature Christians who are being duped by false teachers. He's not talking about people who are saturated in the truth, who desire to obey the truth, who are discerning from the truth exactly what is being said and what is being done. He's not talking about those kinds of people. No, they entice people who are barely have escaped from the ones who live in error. You say, what does he mean? Well, he means that these are people who, who sense their sinful guilt. These are people whose conscience is working upon them. They, they want to get help for their troubled lives. They realize life is filled with difficulties and trouble. And so what do they do? They turn to some kind of religion. They aren't saved people. They aren't people who have placed their faith in Christ. That's not who he's referring to. This is simply those who are trying to escape life's troubles. 
And so what do they do? They run to religion. We all know people like that. They run to religion. Listen, false teachers' audience are full of people like this, people who, who actually notice life has got troubles and difficulties, and they want to escape those troubles and difficulties, and so they turn to a religion and happen into a false teacher's den, and the false teacher takes advantage of them. And they offer freedom. They can't give it. They don't possess it. They want nothing to do with freedom, actually. They've left the way of Christ. They can't give freedom that is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because they deny it. So Peter is here caring for us, the church. He's warning us about these kinds of false teachers. They promise freedom, and yet they themselves are slaves of that corruption. And Peter gives that axiomatic principle, that truth that is there. Whatever it is you're overcome by, it is to that you are enslaved. They're so enslaved by themselves, by their own self-will, by their own daringness, by their own sensuality, by their own carousing and, and love and lust for self, that they're so enslaved to themselves they can't get away from it. And those who come in, who, who desire, who have a conscience that's weighing heavy upon them, come in to their den and they, and they want to be free and they offer them freedom and yet there's no freedom there. They can't give freedom because they're slaves to it themselves. You notice how Peter ends it. Verse 20, he says, For if they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Now, let's be clear. Peter is talking about false teachers here. He's talking about false teachers. And so what does he mean when he says that false teachers escape the defilements of the world? What does he mean when he says that? Well, at one point, they were like those in verse 18. At one point in their life, like I mentioned before, they were those who, whose, whose consciences were weighing on them. At some point, they, they, they reached out to religion in some kind of way because they wanted to appease their own guilty conscience, and they tried to pull themselves up through some kind of personal reformation. They were trying to escape the defilements of the world. By the way, what, is, what does defilements mean? What, what is that? For if after they escape the defilements. The word defilements is, a, is an interesting word. I was talking this week with Debbie about it. It's mesma, mesma uh, in the original language. Mesma, M-I-A-S-M-A. Mesma, I was surprised. I never use this in my own language. It's, an, it's a word we use in English, apparently. Uh, you can look it up. It, it means poisonous or, or, or noxious exaltations that come from rotting organic material. So it's fumes, deadly fumes that come from things that are dying and rotting, or dead and rotting. So, so mesma is poisonous vapor, poisonous germs that, that are released into the atmosphere that have deadly influence. Now, I don't know if you knew that, but that's pretty graphic, isn't it? I said Peter's using graphic images. That's, that's a pretty graphic reality. I don't know what was in Peter's mind when he said that. Maybe he was thinking of Gehenna where the garbage was taken out and it was always burning and there was noxious fumes coming up in Jerusalem. I don't know that, but that may have been what he was thinking about. So, so what is God saying here? What is God saying through Peter to us in reference to false teachers? Well, the world gives off mesma. The world gives off 
this noxiousness because of sin, fallenness, the dead that comes by way of sin. It gives off the poisonous uh, uh, odor, the poisonous germs of sinfulness, if you will, that are deadly in their influence. Well, at some point, Peter says, at some point in time, in the life of these false teachers, they wanted to escape that. They wanted to escape what, what, what we all live under, this, this pressure and influence of sinfulness in the world. They wanted to escape that. They had a heaviness of guilt from that. And so they turned to religion. And in that, in that turn to religion, they gained some intellectual knowledge about salvation. In fact, the word used here for this knowledge, this understanding, it's not talking about an understanding unto salvation. It doesn't mean they got saved. It means they heard it. Someone told them of Jesus Christ. Maybe even in the first century, at some point, they heard Jesus Christ themselves. So rather than turn to some other false religion, rather than turn to some other religion of self-works, they chose to turn to Christianity. You ever know anybody like that? Someone you, you go to, they're under the weight of sin, and, and you tell them about Jesus Christ, and they, they turn to Christianity. They claim to be a believer. But they truly don't know Him at all. Evangelicalism is full of people like that. Claim to be believers, but they don't know Christ. You say, well, how, how do you know they're really not a Christian? How, how do you know these here in verse 20 aren't Christians? Well, look at verse 20 again. Look at what it says. Because even after they've escaped the defilements, the mazma of the world, through, through some kind of outward reformation, some kind of personal self-cleanup, if you will, in their actions, they are again entangled back in the defilement. They are again entangled in them. He's, the them there refers back to the defilements of the world. They're entangled back in this pollution, the mazma. They're, they're fully engaged in it. And this time, they're overcome, and the last state has become worse than the first. Since there's no salvation, since there's no life of Christ, there's no true power over sin, there's no Holy Spirit indwelling them, there's no grace operating, they can't maintain this outward show of outward religion, so what do they do? They just fall back into the world sinful ways. And they attach Christian names to it, justifying their actions by their own Christian words. Peter says the last state is worse than the first. The last state has become worse for them than the first state they were in. Why? Because what's worse? What's, what's worse? The person who dies of a disease not knowing there's a cure or the person who dies of a disease knowing there's a cure and yet rejects the cure. That's why it's worse. Listen, outward reform without inward regeneration is deadly serious. You can try to outwardly reform your life and, and gather yourself up by your bootstraps. In the end, it will never work. It will not save you. And you will be worse in the end than you were when you started. The only real change comes through Jesus Christ. He's the only cure. I'm sure all that are listening could have, in their own mind, named people who they know who wanted Jesus. They wanted Him for what they could get from Him, and yet in the end, they left. They left worse off because they never knew Him by faith. And so they did really what Hebrews chapter 6 says, they trampled underfoot the grace of Christ. 
They've trampled underfoot the grace of Christ. Notice what verse 21 says. For it would be better for them to not have known the way of righteousness. What's the way of righteousness? The way of salvation. Then having known it, turn away from the holy commandment. What's the holy commandment? Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It would have been better for them to not have known that than to know it and turn away from it. You see, it's better to not know of Christ than to know of Christ and reject him. So here are these people who have seen it. They understood it. And they chose to reject it. Hebrews 6 says, it's impossible for them to ever be renewed to repentance. This is an apostate reality. Someone who sees Jesus Christ understands that he's the only way and rejects that outright. Once that is the reality, Hebrews 6 says, there's no renewing them to repentance. Why? Because they've thrown out the only thing that could ever save them. There is no salvation in anyone else. And so look, look at how Peter then just sums it up. He, he sums it up by quoting from Proverbs 26. It's happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit. Yet again, another graphic picture. All of us are disgusted when we see that. We have all seen that, even a domesticated animal like our own dogs at home, some every now and then will do what they do and return to it as if it's the next meal. It's, it's, it's disgusting. And a sow, after washing, returns to wallow in the mire. Peter says it's happened to them according to the true proverb. They're like dogs who go back to their vomit. They're like pigs who get cleaned up, wash themselves up, look good for a moment, and only return to the mud. And so what's the, what's the warning for us? What's the essential warning? I mean, if we had to just take all of that, put it in a big soup pot of reality and a soup pot of truth and boil it down, turn the knob and out the bottom came, came the essence of what it is. As I'm reading this, as I'm reading this, as I'm thinking through it and I'm looking at the attitude, I'm looking at the action. The warning is simply this, stay away from them. Stay away from them. Listen to one thing and one thing only. Listen to true prophets. Listen to those who speak the truth of God's word. Know the word of God. Understand the word of God. And listen to those who speak the truth of the word of God. And do not ever listen to false teachers. It doesn't matter if it comes by way of radio. If it comes by way of TV. If it comes by way of a book. If it comes by any way, any means. Do not listen to false teachers. It is absolutely destructive. That in essence is what Peter is saying in the first two verses of chapter 3. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder what? That you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. Listen to the prophets and the commandments of the Lord, our Savior, that was spoken by the apostles. Listen to true teachers. You know what false teachers look like. You know what they say. You know their attitude. You know their actions. Listen only to what is true. The rest will absolutely devastate your life. Don't even dabble with it. It's not about the, the meat and the bones. It's not about take the good, leave the bad. It's not about any of that. It's about 
leave them completely. None of us would ever willingly follow after someone who we know for sure has left the right way. None of us would ever rightfully and willingly follow someone who has forsaken the right way. That's the false teacher. Let's pray together. Father, there is no truer word than yours. No more authoritative word than yours. No word that is to be listened to and trusted more than yours. So many come and try to say that they're speaking on your behalf and yet contradict the very word you have given us. Let every man be found a liar and you be found to be true. For only you and you alone have what we need. Father, give us the wisdom to discern rightly. To define it as you have defined it, to follow what is right and true and protect us and this church from the evil one. For we know that it's so easy, many twist the truth. Many have gone astray. Lord, I pray that you continue as you have so faithfully done here this morning, protect us that we might be faithful, honoring to you with our lives as we serve and worship you and you only. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.